Have you ever struggled with fear in your life? Have you ever had the thought that I am not brave? Well, I'm here today to tell you that you are. Welcome to the Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Newland, and I'm so glad that you're tuning in here today. Each week, a friend and I get together and share stories of what makes them brave. So sit back, relax, enjoy your favorite cup of coffee or tea, and get ready for some engaging conversation. And remember, no matter what your story is, you are brave. Guys, welcome to another episode of the Brave Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis, and this week is Easter week. At the time of this episode dropping on March 31st, Friday will be Good Friday, and Sunday, He has risen. And I want to give a moment to just thank the Lord for the sacrifice that He made for us that we may live in complete and total freedom. This week is an amazing week because Jesus died for us so we could walk in freedom. I wanted to share that with you guys. So if you're not a believer, even if you are, this is an amazing week. Our Lord and Savior put himself on a cross and died a brutal death so that we may have life. It just is something I am super thankful for every single day of my life. I get to walk in the freedom of being a child of God. I had to drop that in there for you guys. Back to the podcast. My guest today is Sandy Kirkham. Sandy has a difficult story. At age 16, she was sexually abused by her youth pastor, and it altered her life for quite a while. It broke her faith, caused her to leave her church. It left her pretty broken until the age of 49 when she decided to go and confront her abuser. The beautiful part about Sandy's story is that she used her terrible experience to now reach others and minister to them and also help those who are going into ministry understand the detrimental effects abuse can have on the people that they're pastoring and teaching them how not to do that and how to honor the people that they are serving. So loved her story. I could not put her book down. For one, it's something that I didn't really think could happen And you don't want to ever think this could happen, right? And just for her to be so open and to share her story, her book is very difficult to read, but an amazing story of how this horrible thing, how she could take it to now bless others and to help others who've gone through something similar that she has gone through. Loved her story. I just want to give a disclaimer on it before I get started. If you have littles who are in the room, you might want to listen to this with your earbuds in. Or if you have experienced something like this in the past and you feel it may be triggering to you, you may want to skip this interview until another time. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And without further ado, here is my interview with Sandy Kirkham. My name is Alexis Newland, and you're listening to The Brave Podcast. And my guest today is Sandy Phillips Kirkham. Hi, Sandy. I'll have you introduce yourself and tell people why you are amazing. Okay. Well, hi. I've written a book about clergy sexual abuse. I had that experience when I was 16 by my youth pastor. I waited 27 years before I actually told anyone about it. And I never told my husband, never told my friends. I'm married with two children and we have a pretty good life. But in the last 10 years or so, I have been an advocate for victims of clergy abuse and have tried to work toward prevention and education. Wow. 
All right. So let's get into your story a bit. So where were you from? Where did all this start happening to you? It's a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was um, 16 at the time. As a Christian, I had been baptized at age 13, and I was very active in the church, led youth group meetings. I was president of the youth group. I sang in the choir. I taught Sunday school. I think it would be no stretch of the imagination to say that if the church doors were open, I was there. And I absolutely loved being in church. I loved it. Just after I turned 16, our church hired a new pastor. And within a short period of time, he made sexual advances toward me, which um, took about a year before he eventually had sex with me at the age of 17. The abuse lasted for five years until his actions were discovered. And then he was given a going away party. He was moved to the next church. And I was called in by the elders and told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church and I was absolutely devastated. It was, the church was my whole life. And I've said that as horrific as the abuse was, having been told that I wasn't fit to worship in the church was even more devastating and harmful to me as well. I read your book and when I got it, I didn't stop reading it. I I couldn't put it down. And the whole time I was just so angry (laughs) reading your story. And just like, is anyone going to intervene? I couldn't imagine what you went through at age 16, I don't think I've ever considered that someone from the church would do that to a youth. Right. And that's part of the problem that we sometimes don't want to see or we don't yeah. want to believe that that kind of thing can happen within the church. But it does more often than we probably know, because so oftentimes it is covered up. Even though my abuse was 27, well, more than 27 years ago now, but when I was in the 70s, it it's still going on and there's still cover up. And instead of firing these pastors or these rabbis or priests, they let them resign and then they can move to the next church or synagogue. So it's, it's still a problem that exists and victims are still suffering because so many victims like myself won't come forward even years later. And so they're living with this aftermath of the abuse. What do you think that causes people not to want to come forward? Well, first of all, for me, I was just so thankful it was over. I I was so glad it was done and over. I didn't want to think about it anymore. I just wanted to move on with my life. Then I think, too, there's an embarrassment. We don't want to talk about it. And even though I try to tell victims what happened to them was not their fault, that they should have been able to trust this person and this person took advantage of them, we still as victims want to feel like there was something we should have done or could have done. We have a lot of self-blame and we have guilt and we have shame. We're also afraid of being judged. It's a secret that I reveal how are people going to respond. So there's a fear factor there. And then finally is probably the most important is our abusers are very good at telling us over and over again, not to tell anyone. And if you do, no one's going to believe you. And so even when I finally told my secret to my best friend for the first time in 27 years, I was so afraid because I thought I'm going to get in trouble. Even at age 49, I was so afraid because those words never leave you. And so the embarrassment, the fear of the reaction, the fear of being judged, and just the idea that I don't want to talk about it. I just want to move on. But the problem with that is you can't move on because it's always with you. And you're carrying that burden and that secret all the time. Yeah. So what caused you to first speak out to your friend? I remember reading in your book that you were driving Yes. Can you go into that story a little bit? Yeah. It's in the first chapter of my book, I talk about this trigger factor, which trigger factors just come unexpectedly and you're not prepared. And I've had trigger factors and remembrances of him over the years, but I was able to control them and I just kind of waited till they passed. 
But this particular trigger factor, I was driving and I just couldn't control it. I was, was sobbing. I couldn't breathe. I finally had to pull to the side of the road. And it was then that I realized that I wasn't going to be able to push this one back down. And it was really, I think, God's way of saying, okay, it's time. You need yeah. to deal with this. And not only do you need to deal with it, little did I know at that point, I would be able to help others in dealing with my own past. That's what started me on this path of healing and being able to get out from under this abusive uh, relationship that I'd had all those years ago. And so this man, was he single? Was he married? He was married with uh, two children. Now, interestingly enough, and not surprisingly enough, I was not his first victim. Prior to coming to our church, there was uh, a young woman in his first church who accused him of sexual inappropriate behavior. My church was aware of that, but they didn't tell the congregation. There was no information given. Within a short period of time, he was making sexual advances toward me. He then continued this pattern after he left our church. He was removed from the ministry for about a year and a half, and then he was put back in the ministry, and he's a minister today. Which blows my mind that no one has stopped this because what's to say he's not doing it to another person? Exactly. This behavior, it's not just a mistake. It's not just something, oh, it happened. They're very calculating. Most of these men have a repetitive behavior, so they're probably going to do it again. But even at that, the Bible talks about false prophets and it talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. That's what these men are. They're pretending to care about their sheep when they're devouring one of them. And They need to be removed. Just like any profession, if you cross a boundary or the ethics of your profession, you lose your license or you're removed from your profession. So it's not necessarily about punishment, all that can be part of it. Mm -hmm. It's also about safety. Yes. We need to be safe. Every mother and every father should send their children to church and assume and believe that they're going to be safe there. I'm not a mom, but I could not imagine. And if your children were interested in church and knowing this happened to you, did this affect you at all when your children wanted to become a part of their church? It didn't as much as you would think because I truly believe that I had gotten the only bad apple in the barrel. And I didn't believe that this could have ever happened to anyone else, that this just didn't happen other places. So I didn't fear them being in church. But I do remember when my daughter turned 16, I looked at her and I thought how young she looked and how yeah. it reminded me of how young I was. That was the first time I think I had a moment that, wait a minute, I wasn't responsible for what this man did to me. But I, I took my children to church. Church was difficult for me. I had a lot of trigger factors when in church. It had a lot of reminders of him. But I wanted my children to have that experience. So I would go to church and take them to church. But I couldn't engage them in any kind of spiritual discussion. And one of the saddest things for me is the fact that I couldn't have a bedtime prayer with them. It just, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Yeah, it sounds like this really affected your relationship with God. What happened to you? It did. And and I have a chapter in the book called Spiritual Wounds. And, yeah. and many victims, I'm not the only one, many victims will express these same kinds of aftermaths. So I know that God didn't cause this to happen, mm-hmm. but it sent a disconnect with me and God and certainly a disconnect with my church. There were so many reminders of him that were con- confusing with God and confusing with scripture. You have to understand that the trauma that is caused by abuse that it causes to the brain, causes you to think inaccurately. It doesn't allow you to think clearly. So you become confused and you don't know what to think. So imagine that 
this man would have sex with me on a Saturday night and then get up in front of the congregation and preach about love and how we should care for one another. You know, it, it was something I couldn't make sense of. And so that disconnect with God began to, to happen. And it stayed there for 27 years until I was able then to start to heal and get closer to God because I was moving forward in my healing. Yeah. And I can't imagine like how he was able to justify what he was doing, knowing that it says adultery is a sin, knowing all that. And how did he justify these things to you? Well, I don't think they do. Again, if you're a wolf in sheep's clothing, you're truly not a shepherd. A shepherd would have those thoughts. A shepherd would say, I shouldn't be doing this. But a lot of these men are narcissists, so they're very self-centered. They don't think of the consequences, and they really don't care about the consequences to others. So he never really did justify it. What he did say, and many predators in the church will say this, I'm just like David in the Bible, and God uses me in spite of my faults. That was his only justification, mm-hmm. that somehow all the good that he was doing made up for any sexual misconduct or abuse he was committing. Wow. And to use scripture and to twist it like that is just... Exactly. That's another factor that adds into why abuse victims have difficulty with their spiritual life years later. Yeah. Because what's supposed to be there to help you, God's word, was used against you. And so things that you may find company or listeners find comfort in, such as Bible reading and scriptures and and singing of hymns in church, those are trigger factors for most abuse victims where the abuse has happened in the church. Think about this. If you have a problem or an issue, you can go to your pastor. You can go to someone in your church for help. Where does a victim of clergy abuse go? We don't know where to go because the church has been so contaminated for us by the actions of this man. It makes us difficult then to seek help in the church. Definitely. And And really, think about it. The church is supposed to be bringing people in, Mm -hmm. finding ways to turn them away. Yeah. And do you think when this is all going on, did any of your family members suspect anything? Any friends? Did you find that out later once you revealed what happened? Of course, my mother was thrilled I was in the church. I mean, she saw that as a good thing. This was in the 70s, so drugs and free love and sex was all over the place. Here I was in church. You couldn't find a safer place. So she never, and I have to point out, this man was very, very charismatic. So everyone in the church loved him. And I mean, everyone. He had dynamic sermons. He was caring. He seemed to be like a good person. So he would have been the last person anybody would have suspected. But no, my mother didn't see anything. But I will say, after I came forward and told my story, I would have people who were in the church at the time say to me, you know, I remember one time when I thought I saw him take you into the office and that just seemed odd. Or I remember hearing him say this to you and I thought, why is he telling her that? So there were certain signs and red flags, but probably not enough for someone to say, wait a minute, he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. Now, I think today we're a little more in tune so that Mm -hmm. we would say, We might trust our gut feeling to say, wait a minute, he probably shouldn't be doing that. I think there's a little bit more awareness. But again, the church is so capsulated and so insulated that we don't want to see those things in our past or our spiritual leaders. No, Most pastors and spiritual leaders are faithful to their callings. I want to make that clear. This is not to paint a broad stroke on all pastors and priests, but the ones that we know about are the ones that we have found to be committing sexual misconduct and abuse, they need to be taken care of. There need to be consequences. And so right now, do you know if there's any consequences some church bodies have if this happens? Is there like a governing body that can pull their license or take them out? 
Well, there isn't like an overall general. Now, I think 13 states, it is illegal for a pastor, priest, or rabbi, any clergy to have any kind of sexual contact with someone under his counseling care. Mm-hmm. That's only in 13 states. Where I am, Ohio, it, it is not. So what this man did, now if it's a minor, it's against the law. But yeah. if it's an 18, 19-year-old, an adult woman who's in crisis, and that pastor crosses his boundaries by having some kind of a sexual contact with her, he's not breaking any laws. He can do that. If he were a doctor or a therapist, he's breaking yeah, the law exactly. and he loses his license. So now I will say the Presbyterian Church has a very, very strict policy on clergy sexual abuse. They're one of the denominations that has taken this issue and really have made policies in place that removal is almost immediate when yeah. there's been an accurate uh, account of sexual abuse. The independent churches such as Baptists or in the church that I grew up in, Church of Christ, those are a little more difficult because they act independently. So each church and elder board can decide whether to keep him, whether to make it known to the congregation or not. And that becomes an issue. That's why in my church, it was so easy for them to say to this man, oh, you made a mistake. We're going to forgive you. We're going to give you a big party and we're going to send you on your way, which is what they did. Wow. I just, I and, couldn't, I'm just, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I couldn't imagine being your age and watching this, knowing that he pretty much has changed your life from age 16 up until like 2021. And yes. he's getting celebrated where your life has been devastated by this. I was in a place at that point where I had no self-esteem. I had been under this man's thumb for five years. He had controlled every aspect of my life. He was violent toward me. So at that point, I was just so devastated and, and almost a numb feelings of, I don't even know what I was going to do. But I, I did expect that I would get the same treatment to at least be forgiven. Yeah. Not that I should have been forgiven because it wasn't my fault. But the church then turned on me. Now, I will say, not only did I confront my abuser 27 years later, but I also went back to the church um, where this happened. Now, none of the elders are there now, were at the time then, but they were willing to meet me because I thought it was important that the truth be told because the narrative was told by my abuser. I don't know. He could have said, oh, she came on to me or whatever. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So for me, it was important to address the church as well. And so they were very gracious in letting me come back and tell my story. And they welcomed me back into the church. Wow. I'm just blown away. Because there's a lot to the story. I tell people so much. I wrote the book because I wanted to help victims. Yeah wanted to help others who don't quite understand the issue of clergy abuse, or they're still in the mindset that this is something that doesn't happen, or why didn't they know? Why did she wait so long if it truly did happen? So I wanted to educate people, and then hopefully pastors and clergy would read the book so that they can get a better understanding of how it happens, because even if they won't be guilty of it, they may have an assistant pastor who might be, and so they need to see the signs, and they need to be aware of the idea of grooming, manipulation, and all the tools that these men use to trap their victims. So, so I tell people, the first, the first part of the book is difficult to read because it's about- It was people. hard. I was just is. wanted to grab him and shake. And then when right. I found out when they told you to leave, I'm like, what? Did so, they ask you for your story at all during any no, of this? No, I was never asked. I was actually told not to tell my parents, uh, which I eventually did. But I was told where to sit in church. He gave this very, very vague confession. Didn't even really, wasn't even a confession because most people still didn't know what he was talking about. 
But no, I was never called in to talk, talk about it. No one seemed to care about how this was affecting me. It was all about trying to protect him and his family and move him to the next church. And so I was told where to sit in church. I was told what I should say if somebody says something to me. I was really under the control of the elders and this pastor. So going back, though, I tell people the first part of the book is really hard to read because yeah. it is abuse. But the second part of the book, I think, is this feeling of you go, girl. You know, Yes, you- it is. <laughs> You have found your voice and you're going to help others with it. So I think the second part of the book is the hope and healing part. I've had victims say to me, I don't think I could read it. And I always tell them, I'll skip part one. You don't need any of the details, but I think part two and three would be very helpful. I couldn't tell the story without telling the, the first part of the book. Yeah. But I want it to be a book of hope and healing as well. And definitely in that second half, like you said, that you girl girl feeling definitely comes, especially when you're telling your husband. What was that like, if you want to tell the um, listeners about that? I hadn't told him for 27 years, so I kept the secret, which I felt guilty about. The first person I told was my best friend, and then I told two more friends. It would be probably another three or four months before I had, was going to tell my husband. And it wasn't that I didn't think he would be nothing but supportive and care for me, but again... I had that fear instilled in me. What if he does judge me? What if he wonders why I didn't tell him for 27 years? What if he says, okay, well, you were 21. Why didn't you just get out at 21? Not that I thought he would do those things, but again, I was so gripped with fear. And I think that's why victims are so afraid to speak because they fear the consequences when they don't need to, but they do. It's understandable. So I, I... called him at his office. And I just said, I need to tell you something. And it took me 20 minutes. I sobbed for 20 minutes before I could get the words out. I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. And I will tell you, his face just dropped. I could see the pain in his face. And that moment I knew he loved me and he wasn't going to judge me. He's been very supportive. He went with me when I confronted my abuser. I couldn't have done it without him. Yeah. Um, So yes, he's been great through all of this. It's been a little hard on him because I think anytime you love someone and they've gone through pain, you suffer with them. But yeah, it it took me a while to tell him, but I did. Yeah. Yeah. And he's an attorney. So that's really helpful to have that background. Well, yeah, I did because he's got a background of, okay, let's logically look at this. Let's look at the facts, you know, kind of, he was the logical end of it. As much as I know he was hurting, he kept me on track when I would ask a question, he would answer it in a way that was like, okay, I really want to tell her this is my husband, but this is how I think she should, what she should do. I mean, he was worried about me confronting my abuser. He worried how that would affect me and if that would make it worse, but it didn't. So I was glad that I was able to do that. Yeah. So what was it like getting up to that meeting and sitting down, seeing him after 27 years? What was going through your mind? How are you feeling? Well, I was nervous, of course. I was absolutely absolutely scared to death in part because I thought, am I going to get in that room and I'm going to be 16 all over again? And he's Mm -hmm. going to be able to manipulate me. Is he going to make me feel like I'm victimizing him and that he, I'm ruining his career and his life now after 27 years. So I was really afraid that I wouldn't be strong enough. And I also had Googled him prior. So I had an idea of what he looked like. So I didn't have that moment of walking in and seeing this man who was 27 years older. So a lot of, about him I had learned on through the Googling of his name. But once I got into the room, I just felt a calm. I felt God was with me to say, Yes, you need to expose these wolves. It talks about it. Go to the one who's offended you. So I felt confident that what I was doing was the right thing. I had decided that I would memorize everything I was going to say to him because I didn't want to forget something. I didn't want to get rattled. 
So I pretty much said everything I wanted to say to him. He gave excuses, said he had an alcoholic father, said he had been in therapy and was a sexual addict, which whether you believe that's an addiction or not, it's not appropriate for a man who has sexual addictions to be a pastor, regardless. So I was glad that I I did confront him. I was disappointed in his reaction. I, I don't feel like he really understood what he had really done to me and how it had impacted my life. Yeah. And I'm sorry for that. But I guess when I tell victims that you can't expect them after, if they didn't get it when you were, they were abusing you, they're not going to get it 5, 10, 15, 20 years later either. Yeah. So you confront him and you talk to his supervisors as well. I and did. How did. They take your story. First, I went to his immediate boss and his response was, this man has changed and he's a different person and we don't think what happened 27 years ago matters. Now, again, I wasn't the only one. And and in my abuser's words, there've been many, many, many over the years, not all teenagers, but a lot of women in the church. He'd also been sued at one point by a woman's husband. So he had a very good history of this behavior, but this pastor, his leader said, you know, he's done so much good for the church. We've got this new building because of him. We have people coming to the church because of him. And again, I got that. Yes, that's exactly what he does. He's very charismatic and he brings in money and he brings in people, but that should not have any bearing on this man's ability to be a pastor within a church. So he basically said, I don't think this has any bearing and I'm not going to do anything about it. So then I went to his denominational leaders, which was an office in Indianapolis. And Mm. they too kind of said the same thing. And then they said, we don't have any authority because each church is allowed to hire and fire their own ministers. So we can't tell this church that they have to let this man go. So I, I was stonewalled. So I talked to the president of the nomination and kind of got the same response. At one point, he went to another church. And so I sent a letter to them, which is in the book, and just saying to them, you need to know this man's history. And again, I got back a letter that said I was evil, that I was only trying to hurt this man, and I should stay out of their lives. So You have to be pretty strong when you start down this path of trying to remove men who have been accused of and have, well, his wasn't just an accusation. He obviously was caught. But it's not an easy path to go down because you're going to meet resistance, unfortunately, very sadly. Which it just blows my mind. You think if someone said, this has happened to me, this person may be a poor character in judgment, remove him for the safety of the flock. You would think, yeah. It's a no brainer. No brainer, get him out of here, you know? And like, right. yes, there's forgiveness and God forgives, but we can't put people well, in danger. And 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 on what I have said, look, you know, yes, these men, if repentant, and I don't believe my abuser has shown that he's repentant. I think it's in the book of Acts, it talks about forgiveness is given when acts of repentance have been demonstrated. So it's not, not enough to say you're sorry. You have to d- demonstrate that you're yeah. sorry. How do you demonstrate that you really are sorry for what you did? I say that forgiveness can be forgiven if you're truly repentant, but that doesn't mean you get your job back. You can be forgiven and have another position someplace else outside the world. You don't have to be forgiven and get your job back. That's not an equal, we forgive him, he gets his job back. And again, like a therapist or a doctor, they lose their licenses. Yeah, they absolutely. Licenses. 
a boundary. They know it ahead of time. You cannot do that. You cannot take advantage of someone who's in a vulnerable position, who's come to you with a crisis in their life, and then you use that crisis to take advantage of them. And that's exactly, you know, in my case, I was 16. My parents were divorced, didn't see my dad much. And so when this pastor came along, he was wonderful to me. He acted like he cared about me. He tapped into my vulnerability for the sole purpose of using me sexually. And that should not be an acceptable behavior. No. Shouldn't be. Absolutely not. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, I know churches want to use the scripture. We should all, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Forgiveness, judge not, you be judged. But there's also discernment. That's the moral side of it. But the professional side of it is he broke the ethics of his profession. So morally, yes, you can talk about scripture and morally you can talk about forgiving him. But that's one side. The other side is he got a paycheck. He should no longer get a paycheck because he broke those boundaries of his profession. Yes, absolutely. All right. So let's get into the path of where you started becoming an advocate for others through your own pain. Well, that kind of um, happened by accident to some extent. I found a website called The Hope of Survivors, and they help mostly women, mostly adult women who've been sexually abused by a spiritual leader in the church. So I contacted them and their website, if anyone wants to go to it, is just full of information and help that you can get if you want it. And so I started going on their website, and then I contacted them. And after hearing my story, she asked me would I be willing to volunteer for them. So I have spoken at their conferences. I've done some victim counseling. My advocacy began with the Hope of Survivors. And then I spoke to Cincinnati Christian University, which trains men to become mm-hmm. pastors and ministers. I spoke in their ethics class, and it just kind of snowballed to that point where I was helping Um, other victims. And I had a website and I started a a Facebook page and and it just, the number of victims that would contact me, first of all, it would break my heart. But I also knew that how much of a help it would have been to me when this was happening to me and being done to me, that I could have had someone saying to me, here's what happened to me too. And so that's why I share my story. And that it's not easy. I mean, I didn't want people to misunderstand this path didn't just happen overnight. It took time and it took a lot of heartache and pain and tears for me to get through to the other side. And I did that knowing that God was on my side, that I was doing the right thing. And that by helping other victims, I was maybe helping them so that their pain wouldn't last 27 years, that they could start their healing process much sooner than I started mine. One of the things I want to tell victims, because when I talk to them, the first thing they need to understand, even if you're an adult woman, because again, if you're in a crisis situation, you're not going to think clearly, you're going to do some things that you wouldn't do under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. And you've got someone who's in power and someone you think you can trust. So what I say to victims is this, it's not your fault. What happened to you was not your fault. And whatever you think you could have done or should have done, you did what you could with the coping skills you had at the time and who you were at the time. It's okay to think what made me vulnerable, what made me susceptible to this predator, but you were the prey and he was the predator and he trapped you. So first of all, it's not your fault. Yeah. The second thing I like to tell them is educate yourself. Read all you can about clergy sexual abuse or even just sexual abuse. So educate yourself because once you understand the techniques that these men use, you then can be able to 
get out from under it because you now understand what was done to you. So read all you can and then talk about it. Find someone you can talk about it to. That's so important because you can't keep it in. It, it, it will only eat away at you if you keep it in. So going through all this and it affecting your faith, how did you start to get back to God and rebuilding that relationship? Once I, I could see that the abuse was not related to God in any way and mm-hmm. that this was a man that pretended to be a, a man of God, that started it. Then I started to just let myself let God kind of be around me. I still was having difficulty with prayer, but I would think, okay, it's okay if I think about God. I don't have to pray to him and I don't have to go to church, but I'm going to let him surround me a little bit. Then I started going back to church more often. I made myself go. And I remember one Sunday morning, I got out of the car and I just, I just froze because I had this anxiety attack. And I just said, all right, God, if you want me back in this church, you're going to have to put this foot forward because I don't want to go in there. And I had this calm and it was like, that's all I needed. So it was a slow process. I just did it little by little. I didn't just say, okay, I'm going to let God back in my life. I'm going to start reading the Bible again. I'm going to pray all the time. I just bit by bit allow God back into my life. And that brings me to a point that I want those who have not been sexually abused by someone or by clergy in, in the church When you go to help someone who has been sexually abused in the church, keep in mind that things that you find comforting, like prayer and Bible reading and going to church, are not comforting to someone who's been abused in the church. So be aware of that and be sensitive. So instead of saying to a victim of clergy abuse, I'll pray for you, you might want to just rephrase it and say, would it be all right if I pray for you? Mm -hmm. Because that tells that person okay, she understands that prayer could be difficult for me. And don't be surprised if they say, no, I'd rather you not. Because give them time. It takes time to heal. It takes time to move forward. So don't feel like you need to pressure them into going to church or that, you know, I had someone say to me, well, Sandy, if God moved, it's only because you did. God never moved away from you. Well, that's probably true, but it's not helpful. It's not helpful. Mm -hmm. So as Christians, we want to share our faith and we want to do the things that have been helpful to us. But again, as a person who's been abused by clergy, it may not be as helpful. And so Sandy, what are some tips you can give to someone who thinks right now that they may be experiencing what you experienced? What are some things that they can do to get help, to get out? In an abusive relationship now? Yeah. If they're suspecting, I'm listening to Sandy's story and Yes, this is happening to me right now with my pastor or my clergy member. What can I do to get out of this? How can I get help? Well, I wouldn't go to the church leaders. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but you you don't know what their response will be. I, I would find someone you can trust to tell first. And then I probably then would, I would go to the abuser to some extent to say, this isn't right what you're doing. Express to them that you've kind of figured out this isn't right. Now they're going to try to manipulate you back. They're going to say, oh yes, this is God's will. I mean, my abuser would say it's God's will. We're married in God's eyes. This is, you're helping the ministry. But foremost, you need to tell someone. And if there's any doubt, you find someone else and tell them as well. If it's possible to get him on tape, which some victims have done, or you have someone standing outside the room while you confront him, the the more you can gather, or if you suspect there might be someone else, because usually it's more than one person at a time, that's probably, but you know, it's hard for victims when they're in the abusive relationship to do that, but tell someone. That's that's the only thing you, you can do is at that point is to tell someone. Okay. 
Sandy, so what are some of your goals for, I know this year has been kind of crazy. <laughs> what are some of your goals for this year? Like, where do you want to take your victim advocacy, even your ministry? ministry? You know, I have to tell you, one of the saddest things for me over the 27 years that I was not involved in church was that I knew that when I got to heaven, I would never hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And I now know that I can say those words because this is a ministry. I know it's what God wants me to do. And it's only because of God that I can do this. So what I look for in 2021, (laughs) I love saying 2021, I'm sick of 2020. (laughs) But I do hope that my book will help others and people will go to my website where there's lots of information that they can help them. I will continue to help victims. I'm, I'm always available for speaking engagements, whatever I can do. You know, I would love to go to churches and say, get a congregation of your members together and I will talk about my story. I'm not an angry person. This is not about pastor bashing. This is about educating and prevention and helping victims. That's what this is about. I forgave my abuser a long time ago. Wasn't easy, but I forgave him because I understood that if I didn't do that, he was always going to be a part of my life. For 27 years, I walked around with guilt and shame. After I confronted him, I walked around with anger and disappointment. So he was still controlling me. And it was my way of unburdening myself from him. I had to unburden myself. And I could only do that by to say, I'm going to let it go and let God deal with him. And I could move forward and help others. And if I didn't let go of it, I wasn't going to be able to help anyone else. So Sandy, when did you decide that you were brave? Probably about six or seven months after I confronted him, because I was an emotional mess for a while. I mean, I, I had to deal with a lot of garbage that he had put inside my mind. And I was always nervous the first few times I spoke, but there was a point that I came when I realized, you know what, this took a lot of courage to do this. I didn't know that I had that courage, but for 27 years, I I didn't have it. But then I realized at one point, you know what, it takes some courage to speak up and go forward. But because I knew it was the right thing to do, and because I knew God wanted me to do this, it made it easier to find that courage. So that's probably how I I found that courage. It was knowing that this was the right thing to do and that God was behind me. All right. Thank you so much, Sandy. I'm going to put all your contact info in the show notes. People can find you and get your book. It's amazing, you guys. I you You can't put it down. And Before we go, what is the name of your book? It's called Let Me Pray Upon You, P-R-E-Y. That's the name of the book. And it it took me about two years to write. Um, It was difficult to write at times, but I'm thankful I've written it. I've had many comments from victims who've said it's been a help to them. So it's made it worth it. Yes, it's a wonderful book. And I'm so glad you wrote it. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you. You're a great host and I appreciate your time. Guys, thanks so much for tuning into today's interview. Although this was a very hard thing to listen to what stuck out the most to me from her interview was this statement from sandy for 27 years i walked around with guilt and shame after i confronted him i walked around with anger and disappointment so he was still controlling me i had to unburden myself and i couldn't only do that by to say i'm going to let it go and let god deal with him And I could move forward and help others. And if I didn't let go of it, I wasn't going to be able to help anyone else. And that's just such a powerful statement of letting go and letting God take control of the difficult things in our life, knowing that he will take care of us. Sandy, I'm so thankful that you shared the story with our podcast listeners. I'm so grateful for it. 
if you're interested in picking up her book or learning about her victim advocacy program, I'll put all the links in the show notes. All right, here are my three asks. Ask number one is ratings. I love ratings. They help me understand what I'm doing well, what I need to work on. I appreciate them. And it also helps people find the podcast. So that's my first ask. And for those of you who've left ratings, thank you so much. Secondly, share. If you found something today that could help another person, please share the podcast with a friend. And then finally, you can subscribe to the Brave Podcast through iTunes, Spotify. You can follow me there. I'm on Stitcher. I'm on Pandora, Amazon Music. You can even go to my website, www.braveoneministries.com. Fill out the contact form. You'll get on the email list. And then I promise I won't spam you, but I will send you a newsletter so you know about all things Brave Podcast and other things that I'm doing in my life. All right, you guys. Next week is April, which is so crazy that it is now April. This year is just flying by, y'all. It's crazy. My next guest was such a fun one, and he has another powerful story to bring you guys. His name is Rashawn Copeland. He talks about a time where he was basically facing life and death and how God met him there. So that episode is next week, which will be April, which is bananas. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in and I will see you next time. Bye.